The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sporkbox. Here are your headlines today. A changing of the guard at UBS, the Swiss lender appoints Swiss re-chairman Sergio Morty as CEO, taking over from Ralph Harmer's effective the 5th of April. The Fed's top banking regulator lays into SVB, saying the bank did a terrible job of managing risk ahead of its collapse. A total of $100 billion uh, was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that. Alibaba gets a shake-up spinning off its businesses into six units that could potentially seek separate IPOs. Asian equities advance on the breakup plans. And U.S. authorities slapping fresh charges on Sam Bankman-Fried. They've now accused the former FTX boss of paying a $40 million bribe to the Chinese government officials. Wow. So, very good morning, everybody. Very good morning. Good very morning. good morning. Not often, I think, a headline has been underplayed. Yes. Um, and very often, we, yeah, but you get shock and horror in a headline. Like I was reading the NFT there about something completely different. Yes. And it doesn't w- merit it. But actually, I think we need to go for shock and absolute huge concern about what's going on at UBS. Well, I, I think this is um, astonishing. And the fact that there was no whiff of this anywhere in the media ahead of this announcement. I think is extraordinary. Uh, so they've managed to keep a lid on this because they must have been in negotiations with Sergio Amotti for several days. Let, let's just reflect on the announcement here. So just as we were coming to air, we were thinking about what would be our headline story this morning. We were making all the plans with the producers and having the conversation as you do about what deserves to lead. Then this press release hit the wires and the big news here, UBS effectively have pushed Ralph Hammers to one side. The CEO who seems to have done an admirable job of running the bank over the last few years, he has been moved aside here to bring Sergio Amotti back. Sergio Amotti, previously the CEO, of course, and uh, Axel. Um, And Sergio Amotti is now coming back to steer through the restructuring of this organization with bringing Credit Suisse on board. And and the the press release is is very interesting for what it says and what it doesn't say. So it is um, full of uh, compliments about Ralph Hammers. He's done a good job over recent years. It is full of compliments towards Sergio Armotti. Uh, He uh, built financial strength and improved resilience by putting the firm's leading global wealth management, asset management business and Swiss Universal Bank at its core during the difficult days following the financial crisis. He swiftly transformed the investment bank by cutting its footprint and so on and so forth. This this move is described as... uh, a, a, a way of um, helping the Swiss financial sector and the Swiss bank reorganize. But it also talks about helping the country. Now, I, I think that's extraordinary that this is in some way positioned as a move that is in the best interests of the Swiss people. Again, what did Ralph Hammers do wrong? 
and why does he not deserve to pursue through this transition programme? We will have to wait, and hopefully we will get more information on this, but at the moment I would say it's fairly scant. We are feeling our way around this press release and trying to understand exactly what it is that is so critical about Sergio Armotti and so flawed in Ralph Hammers that we need to see the shift. I think we just need to go back over history. Let's start with Hammers. When he first joined UBS, there were question marks as to whether he was the right choice anyway, given he came from a retail background. Now, clearly, we're looking at a massive entity in Switzerland that is systemically important and a much larger institution than the one that he joined to head up. Go back a little bit further in time. This just goes to some of the points that have been raised by UBS. Just exactly what Amati did. Don't forget, he was in charge of the cleanup after the rogue trading scandal at UBS very much having to crack down on risk and compliance. This has been an issue that has seen the unwinding of Credit Suisse, a man that was uh, very instrumental in bringing about that capital light investment banking model, which is, of course, where Credit Suisse also needs to be taken into this integration with the UBS. Uh, it put at the heart of the UBS model Swiss banking. You've got the biggest Swiss banking entity all under the one roof now, but also wealth management. This was seen as a very big significant step forward in wealth management for UBS under the Amorti years. He is now facing a bank in turmoil and already reports in the press today as well that uh, parts of the wealth management business will leave uh, now that you've got this integration, that you've got dual teams competing, the Asian business, you've got uh, mid-sized banks trying to pick away at what is left of this entity as uh, the integration takes place, with some managers are concerned they're not going to be number one as they join UBS, and uh, already there are concerns about retention being the number one issue. So Amorti, I think, is seen as the one with the credentials here that can lead the bank forward. Um, you're right, of course. Amorti was very successful at UBS, and... But also, Ralph Hammers was very successful at UBS. So I think you have to look back and actually see what's happened, obviously, is this huge deal has been announced. And, and I'm, what one can extrapolate that they did not think that Ralph Hammers was fully invested in the process of taking this over, or they didn't think he had the skill set. And if you didn't think your CEO had the skill set, that is extraordinary. And again, one of the comments uh, from this copy uh, talks about the new priorities uh, and how um, Amotti will be very successful at addressing those new priorities. The fact of the matter is, Ralph Hammers did nothing wrong at UBS. In fact, quite the opposite. He came in at a very difficult time. He's negotiated COVID. He's kept that bank at a price-to-book ratio of one, which is something that the illustrious names throughout European banking, virtually none of them have managed to keep it to that level. And they've managed to keep themselves relevant in investment banking as well. Again, something other illustrious names have failed to do so as well. So I think one can assume that there's either one or two things going on here. Well, three things. One, Ralph Hammers has done something wrong that actually we don't know about. But I doubt that very much because there's a transition period. Otherwise, he'd be out the door straight away. So I think, I think we can boot that idea into touch. One, he wasn't invested in this and just didn't want to do it. Uh, and, as, and he made his feelings clear and the fact that they felt that someone with a greater skill set or more knowledge perhaps over the longer term of working with the regulators, working with the Swiss government as well, working with the system as well because if nothing else the Swiss banking is a coterie, a clique of very very important people at the top in Zurich as well. So maybe they just felt that Ralph Hammers was too much of an outsider and that Amotti who knew the system inside out would be better at working with all these disparate parties. You some good points, I mean regulators will be all over this but your other point around is it skill set or something else? I mean, right in the wash-up 
of this uh, acquisition by UBS of Credit Suisse, one of the comments was that uh, Ralph Harmers would be there for the long term. Now, it'd be very hard for the bank to change over the CEO. And clearly, just uh, a number of days later, we're looking at that very scenario. So it does make you wonder whether the number one issue was skill set. So, so when Ralph Hammers came in, Ralph was selected for a specific purpose. You know, Amotti was seen as a banker's banker. Um, uh, Axel Weber, obviously ex-central banker, kept a very steady hand on the tiller with the oversight on Amotti coming out of the financial crisis. But the bank was seen to be stuck in the past. The bank was not seen to be uh, racehorse ready for the digital era. And that's why Ralph Hammers was brought in, I think. And if you're suggesting that he's not the right man for the job, then I think the board actually have some culpability here because they shouldn't have appointed him if they didn't think he was an all-weather banker. Now, I don't think he's not an all-weather banker, which is why I think this is a very curious announcement. And we're going to have to wait and see to what extent this may have been down to the peccadilloes of the Swiss board. But let's wait and see because Amotti, um, Ralph Hammers was brought in to hasten the digitization of UBS. And as, as early as last week, there were um, uh, 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 articles doing the rounds about him, about how he's come in to turn UBS into the Netflix of banking, a bank that's moved into the modern era. Now, either he was the right man for the job or he wasn't. And we can focus on this strength and this strength and this strength. But the CEO works hand in glove with the chairman when it comes to the strategic direction of the organization. But below him, there are a whole stream of section heads who will be responsible for managing and implementing the introduction of the Credit Suisse teams and the absorption of those client accounts. Are we saying that suddenly he's gone from, not being, cap from being capable of that to not being capable? of that. Now, the only thing that we could say is, yes, maybe some of this Dutch legal action has finally caught up with him. And ultimately, the board doesn't want this to be a distraction in the transition. But I'm not hearing anything at this stage which actually explains why this transition has taken place beyond, you know, a, no a nudge and a wink here and there about, oh, is he the right person to oversee the brutal bloodletting that is going to occur in UBS and which has probably already started with various section chiefs um, negotiating and trying to get primacy for their key players. So I still don't see in here, Karen, an answer as to why he needs to go to one side. I think we've just pointed out the strategy has changed. It's become the old strategy. What he achieved back at UBS many years ago is exactly what he's going to have to now achieve at the bank again as a joint entity. He's going to be picking over the very same issues that he cleaned up at UBS as Credit Suisse comes back into the fold. And if you think about what I just mentioned around wealth management, that there's a fight as to you know what's going to stay, what's going to leave, and retaining the best talent, retaining the best parts of the business. And this is a man who picked through all the best talent through Switzerland and around the banking community for many years, deciding what was number one, how to be number one, and to propel the business forward. So I think now, as he makes decisions, about which teams of Credit Suisse to, to fold in, which ones to let go, which key managers to keep. He knows the, knows the talent base. I, I the other, the other big, with you. The other big point I would make is if Disney had not done this and brought back Bob Iger, 
would this be even a palatable solution I think your first point for is UBS? Than your second, I've got to be honest. Well, I think, well, no, it, but, I think what Bob Iger is doing over, is, is irrelevant. But going back over history, I mean, who brings back I, their I old CEO? You sort of see it as a chapter that's done. Uh, this is a. Uh, Starbucks. Well, 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 maybe, or maybe it's a leaf oh. out of an American book. It's not a typical European model to see someone who's been there for but, many but, years but and I mean, then he didn't go leave away. to he come still back. Involved in the top of Switzerland and you know, chairman of Swiss Re and all that as well. But, so not, he didn't not get... a, but not at UBS. And for me, this is such a dramatic move. I mean, we all sat back and went, "Really? We actually top table of Swiss this, business? This... I don't think yeah, he'd ever it, gone away, had he?" Don't you think this is a significant change? It's a significant. Th- oh yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, yeah, stunningly absolutely. significant. And, um, and I, why is it acceptable? It's acceptable because you've seen in two other major cases now, as you point out, stateside. So and I wonder um, whether that's made this well, palatable we, as a solution. I mean, look, we're, we're all grasping for for answers here. I mean, you know, you make a great point about him being a still a pivotal Swiss business player. And is this about the Swiss rounding the wagons because they feel under assault? Uh, from the US regulators, from the EU now, which has been critical of the 81s, uh, from the UK, which has been critical of what happened to the 81s. Is this the grandees, the gnomes of Zurich, basically saying, OK, fine, we need a Swiss solution well, here? Well, they've shut out insiders before. Uh, sorry, but outsiders before, you know, I mean, let's say whatever Tijan TM did and didn't do over at Credit Suisse, he was seen as a novel outsider. And actually, there were lots of accusations that the insiders in Zurich shut him out. I want to move on to the share price. We haven't talked about the share price. And you and I were pontificating. And, and I think any one of you out there, if you're smart enough and have seen this story, can make a very good bear case and a very good bull case this morning. Uh, and therein lies your problem if you want to look at the shares. Uh, I do want to show you the dip. There you go. 2020, they were pretty much at their lows of the last five years. That's when Amotti handed over to Ralph Hammers. So Ralph Hammers, before the dip on the right-hand side, the, like, the, about centimetre off from the top there, actually, Hammers had doubled the share price. Now, he hadn't done it on his own. Mm. And a lot of other macro factors have happened. A lot of uh, societal things have happened. We've come out of COVID, for instance, as well. But the fact is, unlike many European share groups, the shares had rallied from their lows as well. They were traded at a price to book of one. Um, and the price earnings is actually in line with a lot of the sector, low at around about eight times forward. So the bear case this morning, there is dismay at the top of what is the most systemically important bank arguably in Europe, certainly in Switzerland as well. Um, We don't know why the boardrooms had this huge schism uh, and huge um, change back to Amati for whatever reason, as Karen was saying as well. So the bear case is there's chaos at the top of UBS. The bull case is you've got someone, again, as Karen was saying, an insider, as you were saying, someone who knows the system, who can work with the regulators, work with the government, and actually will execute the acquisition, the takeover of Credit Suisse better than um, Hammers could have done. So you can make yourself a very good bull and bear case today. One thing I will say is I don't know if it's coincidence, but RBC have cut uh, UBS this morning to sector perform from outperform, cut the price target to 20 Swissy from 24. I don't know if that one was made before or after this announcement. It seems so. very, very quick from RBC I, I so, if, right. if it was uh, on the back Give of this. Give retention the big issue. But, you know, if we are going to look at stock prices, don't forget there's another one here that's in the mix because we're going back over history again. We had a, a key departure from UBS back in the day because there were concerns that Sergio Motti would never leave and that was the, the would-be successor, Andrea Orsell, over at Unicred. I mean, he went to Santander initially at the time he had hoped. That didn't work out, ended up over at Unicred. But one of the issues was that he didn't feel necessarily that that handover was going to happen at some point. And there's this justification now where you have Amotti coming back in that he had genuine concerns 
about what that transition could actually look like. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com at some point. The Fed's top banking regulator, Michael Barr, told a congressional hearing that Silicon Valley Bank did a terrible job of managing risk just before it collapsed. Now, testifying before a Senate panel, Barr said the way SVB modelled interest rate risk was not at all aligned with reality. He said Fed supervisors had warned there were issues with the bank's management in mid-February, but said SVB did not take appropriate action. In his testimony on the Hill, Barr also revealed more details about SVB's actions in the last hours before its collapse. He said that after an initial $42 billion in outflows on the Thursday, the bank told regulators it was expecting to lose more than double that the next day. Um, a total of $100 billion uh, was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that. Uh, and therefore they were not able to actually meet their obligations uh, to pay their depositors over the course of that day and, and they were shut down. Right, um, you'll like this ladies and gentlemen. Um, now where is it? September uh, the 12th, 2022, an interview with NZZ Anzontag. This is Sergio Motti talking about the diversification of the Swiss financial centre is more important than maintaining two large banks. The headline is Switzerland doesn't need two large banks. This was an interview uh, with Amotti talking about um, the, the situation over in, um, in Zurich at the time as well. Uh, the challenging environment for large banks demands tough decisions, according to Amotti. To survive an independent bank, Credit Suisse should focus on its strength and introduce necessary reforms, giving it a good chance to survive. But the fact is, as I say, going back as uh, probably a lot earlier as well. I mean, it's just one article I found, NZZ on Sontag, September 2022, Switzerland doesn't need two large banks. Interesting comment. Don't forget, this is a man who didn't want to be a politician, that he saw himself best place in business and as a banker. Uh, clearly uh, highly political territory yeah, these days. But he didn't days. want the Credit Suisse job either, did he? No. Thomas Gottstein got that. Exactly. We've got Peter Garnery with us, Head of Equity Strategy at Saxo Bank. Peter, we have to bring you in on the, the changes over at UBS, the, the systemic changes really that impact Swiss banking. Do you want to just weigh in on the news flow? Yeah, it's uh, with all asset forced mergers or you have you know, an acquisition of uh, non-equal parties, you can always have this friction. And I think that is what you see at play here. It was very clear that the, the former CEO, now former CEO of UBS was not really uh, happy about this, uh, what we call a shotgun wedding. Um, and I think that's the fallout we see now. And because you have this very big uh, implicit guarantees from the Swiss government and the government being behind the lines of this, um, this merger, of course, it's very important, for, I think, for the Swiss government, who is in charge of this, uh, this process that will continue after the merger is, is complete, completed. So I think it, it very much smells of, uh, of friction and personal relationships matters more uh, in this case. And, but I think it's, it's quite interesting with the, the comment about that, that Switzerland needs one bank. Everything we have seen, I think, since the great financial crisis with regulation is, is, is leading us down one path of you know, bigger and bigger banks, more and more concentration. 
which leads to fragility, but also less, uh, less competition. And, and I'm, I'm not sure it's long-term going to be, be good for the overall financial system. And it, it also increases the conversation or it, it puts the conversation out there whether you know, are we moving towards you know, more you know, public interference with, with money itself, also the discussions in the US after SVB, you know, to what degree should there be guarantees on deposits above the FDIC uh, deposit guarantee limit if you do that, what's the whole purpose of having banks, you know, private money, etc.? I think we there are very big questions here about this and where we headed in the banking system. The issue seemed to be for Hamas now for Amorti about retention, whether some of the clients, whether deposits, whether money would stay with the joint entity, whether small and medium-sized banks across Switzerland, whether other major lenders would try and pick away at business from the joint entity that is in this integration process. What do you make of the ability for Amorti to hold on to some of that business at this point, but also go back over history and recreate what he did at UBS now for the overall entity? It's a very good question. I mean, they, we have a lot of data on, on mergers and acquisitions, and typically you never get the, the synergies that you expect, and, and that is also the case in the banking industry. If you look at UBS and you look at Credit Suisse, the UBS has been a very well-run bank, as you also mentioned in your introduction, the uh, you know, capital light model, etc. If you look at over the past five, seven years, you have had a return on equity that has been on the good side of 10% for UBS, give or take, depending on what you subtract, etc. And then if you look at the credit switch with closer to two or three percent, it's been a catastrophe. They have a very well-run bank that is now absorbing a very bad-run bank. And uh, the question is, what can you eliminate all the fat and all the, the bad you know, processes that are clearly in credit switch and get the entire entity back to around that 10%? Because that is the magical number. It's the, the issue we have on our hands in Europe is that the equity story in the European banking system has been terrible since 2010 just in the five in the past five years the total return on european the banking index has been around two percent um, compared to the overall market being up so there is a very bad equity story here and that's also the the wider problem we have with the one market which is now you know displaying yields that are significantly above the return on equity and that there it means that there is a very critical funding source that is now not available to the same degree as in the past. We know the ECB already last year talked about they want common equity to play a larger role in the tier one capital structure than the AT1 bonds. If that's the case, I think that's also what the market is pricing in now, that we are moving towards more common equity, but the equity story is just really bad. And um, how big is the dilution going to be if we're going to you know, substitute a lot of the AT1 capital with common equity? Peter, let's, let's talk about the consequences then of tightening financial conditions, because I think um, as we look at the banking sector, we all understand uh, the implications of what's happening as these banks worry about the uh, tightening in interest rates. You've singled out the real estate sector for us in Europe for special attention here. Just give us your tuppence worth. What do you think happens next in this sector? And one assumes you believe it's, it's one to steer clear of. Yeah, so the first phase here <clears throat> has been a, a shock, and we all talk about this deposit game. Everyone is fighting for deposits now. The eighty-one funding costs are increasing for banks, etc. But the next shoe to drop is, in our opinion, is the real estate sector. The real estate sector and private equity, to some extent, which is a you know a secondary part of the financial system, is called almost a shadow banking system. Very important. 
both these sectors have you know a lot of level two and level three assets so they're not marked to market and that means that there is a considerable lag from the high interest rates until you begin to see the cracks and those cracks are now getting wider in europe we flagged last week uh, around town which is the third largest publicly listed real estate company on assets around 40 billion euros and yesterday it was uh, it was down a lot in new lows um, it really is priced for almost a restructuring or a bankruptcy uh, you have Phenonia in, in Europe, sorry, out of Germany, which is one of the, it is the largest on, uh, on assets uh, of the publicly listed real estate firms, is also looking extremely weak. In Sweden, Wallenstam, some of the other real estate companies made new uh, lows yesterday. And especially Sweden, we see as the beacon of what to come from maybe other European uh, markets, because Sweden has a considerably higher part of the overall housing financing, which is coming from adjustable mortgages. So the sensitivity from higher mortgage rates will be felt the most in Sweden. And you also see prior to next uh, to the prior week that there was a lot of focus on the Swedish banks by the market. Uh, the German banks and the Swedish banks are clearly the, the weakest right now when you look at the pricing action we had post the uh, SVB financial meltdown. Hi, Peter. And yet, and yet the uh, conference board data on consumer confidence in the States yesterday again was great. A really positive piece of data as well. Expectations component was the strongest part of that as well. Despite everything you say, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with many of your concerns out there as well. Is the US going to go into recession? Is the consumer going to have to pull back? Are we going to see markets have to react to that? Three questions in one for you. I think it's going to be a very close call in the US. There's a lot of indicators that are suggesting that we are slipping into a recession. If you ask and survey the economists uh, out there, uh, it's leaning now towards a recession. I think 60% of all the leading economists following the US economy is believing that there will be a recession. I think the key point here will be the credit conditions. I think the consumer confidence out there, uh, although it's a very important indicator, I think consumers in general will be the last one to acknowledge and see that there is a big crisis coming. All the things we we're talking about to this this morning and the banking crisis over the past two weeks, the cracks in real estate, they have a tendency to to move slowly and then they explode. The cracks get wider and then there is a lack before it really hits the economy. And the consumer will be the last one to see it because, um, you know, we work with this every day. So we see it in real time. Um, so that's one consideration. The U.S. economy, we were actually more positive on, on Europe because we had this theme of the physical world staging a comeback versus the digital world. And that was in favor of European equities. And we have been part of that trade, but with increasing probability of a recession, then it will swing towards US equities on a relative basis because of the mega caps, you know, companies with very large market share, you know, the technology companies, they will be a safe haven on a relative basis if we slip into that, uh, that recession. The big joker is going to be China. Everyone has talked about the Chinese reopening and to what extent will that be a positive impulse that can you know, offset some of the weakness that we're seeing in the US and Europe. And that is still the big X factor. We don't really know. I think there was some very encouraging comments from Tencent when they said that they see from the advertisers in China, they're really they're cranking it up now. They're really believing and the outlook will improve dramatically over the next three to six months. And that's a forward leading indicator on China, they, what the advertisers are seeing out there. And so. That's the X factor. I think it's going to be extremely close while we get into a recession or not. And the key thing will be the real estate sector and credit conditions, which are very tight. And also a very, you know, another point, which I'm sure you have already discussed in the show as well, is that the majority of commercial real estate loans in the U.S. sits with the uh, banks outside the top 25. And the long tail of financial institutions in the U.S. are right now those that are the weakest 
on their tech and are the most vulnerable in this musical chair game about the, uh, around deposits. So it's, uh, it's going to be a very exciting year, to say the least. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.